3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Budawang peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Uh, by their own admission yesterday, of these people arrested, I think three of them are on some sort of government benefit, be it New Start or something else. Well, the first thing that should happen is you won't go to work, you're bludgers, you're sitting on your backsides gluing yourself to roads, you won't be getting paid by us. Go back to Pelican Waters and ask Mummy and Daddy for some cash because we're not giving you any more. Well, I agree. And I'll tell you the other thing that should happen, Ray, is that uh, you know these, these people are very effective at using social media, mm. trying to rally causes, trying to bully people, uh, you know, sending abusive, threatening emails to, to you or to me. Well, people should take these names and the photos of these people and distribute them as far and wide as they can so that we shame these people, shame them because of the actions they've committed and because they're acting outside of the law and against community standards. Let their families know. Uh, what do you think of their behaviour? No emergency services should help them. Nobody should do anything. Leave them there and you just put little witches' hats around them and try and walk them as a Hello, this is Off the Press, a podcast exploring current affairs through a youth lens. This is our first episode, so hang with us. It's a bit of a trial and error thing. Uh, but as you heard, we just started off with a little bit of audio. And you know what? We have to apologise that the first thing you've heard of us is Peter Dutton and Carrie Ann Kennelly. Mm. We're sorry. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is because this week's topic uh, that we'll be kind of looking into is protests. And P- both Peter Dutton and Carrie Ann, as well as the protest sounds you heard right at the beginning, have been major voices in this. Yeah, 2019 has been the year of the protest. Everything from Hong Kong to the school strikes for climate. I think almost every week there has been at least one story of protesting mm. in the news. But before we get on with anything else, introductions are a good idea. So I'm Edwin. And I'm Eleanor. Uh, we're both based in Melbourne, students, y- youth people, the young'uns, if you will. <laughs> the young'uns. Um, and basically, uh, we, we kind of started this podcast because we're sick of hearing of current affairs from not necessarily older, but more authoritative or institutional perspectives. Um, I think it's one of those things that... We have our media institutions, mm. and those are very highbrow and highly regarded, and then anything for youth is kind of looked down upon. Mm. Anything that's designed for a younger audience is kind of disregarded as maybe not proper. And we can all really get trapped in our own filter bubbles and our own kind of echo chambers with what we have been told is the right or wrong way to see a certain issue. So this is all about opening discussions. It's all about creating an empathy exercise where we get to listen to different perspectives, ones that we don't necessarily agree with, and kind of find a deeper truth or a deeper meaning. Make our own judgments from it. Yeah, so what we want to do is we want to have a conversation with you. We don't want to talk at you. Uh, we don't want to tell you what to do or tell you what to think. We just want to chat with you. And this podcast isn't about us or our ideas or our views. It's about you and 
What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What do you want to know? So that's kind of what this discussion is going to be about. I uh, hope you're in for the ride. And yeah, we'll, we'll get in with it. We'll be getting a few like guests on today, but we wanted to start off with like a little bit of a breakdown. Eleanor, I wanted to get your perspective because you and I have vastly different experiences when it comes to protesting. Yes. What do you, what do you think when you think of protests, and what do you think of when you think of 2019 and protests? See, with me, protesting isn't just about like large marching in the streets, but it's also about like individuals forming collectives and doing something. Whether that something is boycotting a product because we know boycotts are a form of protest, whether it's singing a song, doing a dance, writing letters, like all those are form of protest. As long as you're speaking out against some sort of thing that's troubling you, like that's a protest. You Mm. don't have to like go out and, you know, wave your flags and (laughs) scream at people and do all that. Yeah, it's interesting. I always think back to um, your Bob Dylan's classic guitar with, like, this machine kills fascists and just the the movement in America, especially we saw during the anti-war movement. Um, Yeah, and I think this year we've definitely seen protests more in, like, the physical sense Hmm. in terms of, like, people getting out and getting in the streets. But I remember hearing a while ago that this is almost like a very ableist version of protesting. Oh, yeah. Because writing uh, in a society where you are silenced or just speaking out is a form of protest in itself, and we shouldn't dismiss those forms of protest either. And all of that kind of brings us to now, which is this year, 2019. As we mentioned, we've seen a huge rise of international protests. Yeah, and I think the elephant in the room in terms of these protests is Hong Kong. These protests have been going on since June, and I don't think anyone expected them to be going on, or at least no one in Australia um, 
expected them to be going on for this long and this intense. And it started about an extradition bill that people from Hong Kong didn't want to be extradited to mainland China when they committed a crime. But now it's more about democracy. And the whole um, Hong Kong political situation is very, very complicated. Absolutely. And it's interesting because Hong Kong has been a turning point, but there have been protests happening all over the world that have been just as significant. Mm. I mean, in Indonesia, we've had uh, massive protests over a controversial criminal code that would outlaw sex outside of marriage. So a fight back against conservatism. Uh, in Lebanon, we've seen protesters challenging uh, polit- corrupt political parties um, and calling on them to address huge systemic economical issues that have been ravaging that country for years now. Or even Peru, where locals are blocking the country's largest copper mines after the, um, the owner uh, of the mines, which was a Chinese miner, MMG LTD, have been pushing ahead with works that the indigenous people of the area fought against. Like, the list goes on. There was also, I, I thought, a rather funny protest happening in the Netherlands earlier this year where um, basically uh, hundreds of tra- um, farmers rolled their tractors on the major highways of the Netherlands <laughs> up to The Hague in protest. So we're seeing, like, such a mix of protests, but just protests happening everywhere. And this is what I'm talking about, that protests take many different forms. It's not just you holding up your sign. It's you driving your tractor down the highway. Mm. Um, But what is true of all of these movements, though, is that a lot of them are being led by young people. I mean, not the Netherlands. I'll I'll give you that. Um, Well, I want my 19-year-old farmer husband from the Netherlands. Thank you very much. (laughs) But a lot of them are fighting for democracy and equality, and a lot, such as in Hong Kong, are risking their lives every day to do it. And this has created a huge amount of international unity between different struggles that we're seeing in different countries. I mean, I was at the recent IMARC protests in Melbourne. Uh, you might have heard of this. And one of the main chants was, uh, Chile's gone on strike. Hong Kongers won't give in. Fuck you and your corporate greed. We've got a war to win. And I mean, one, what a quote. What a chant. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, though, does it? Oh, it, it does when you're screaming it. But yeah, it, it's anyway. not a coal. Don't dig it. Leave it in the ground. It's time to get with it. My favourite. My point was, though, uh, it really did show this culmination of different struggles happening. And it was referencing it and creating this sense within the protesters that, hey, we are not alone in this. No matter where we are in the world, there are these few ideas that keep coming back in protest, and that's wealth, democracy, and the environment. These are just all rights that everyone wants and everyone is fighting for. We've seen, we've seen this kind of opening up of international solidarity. And I think this draws into something Eleanor and I have talked about quite a bit in the past, which is protest in the 21st century is a bit different. Yeah, and I think it, two big reasons of why. Globalisation, we're just, we're all connected, dudes. This wonderful life, we're all connected, holding hands across the globe. You know. But also <laughs> news and social media. The internet is allowing this facilitation of information and all that sort of stuff more freely. Just this idea that not only are Australians protesting for Australian issues, but Australians in Australia are protesting for Hong Kong. Mm. Um, for Chile, for, for Lebanon, for any of the conflicts that we've just mentioned. There's a huge sense of mateship's not the right word, but like... But um, it's kind of the perfect word. Mm. It is that Australian mateship, and whether it's solidarity through online activity or it's getting out in front of the State Library because, you know, the State Library, that's where we protest. <laughs> um, and we're just showing solidarity for people going through stuff in other countries. Absolutely. And we wanted to explore, again, the good, the bad, like what, what 
this means for protesting. So we've got our first guest, Valentina, who recently spoke at a few protests in Melbourne, uh, namely it was a Stand Up For Your Rights protest. Valentina is a Chilean activist who has been talking about the struggles happening over there, but also kind of talking about like Australian and what was happening in Australia as well. As we said, uh, we've got Valentina now actually in the studio to kind of unpack this idea of uh, protests and give us a little bit more about her experience with protests. So before we got into kind of deeper discussions around protesting, I just wanted to know what's your experience with protesting? What's kind of your background? Okay, so as a Chilean, I think we all have our protest history because we've been protesting for so long, since forever, probably. Mm -hmm. But me personally and what I'm... Uh, involved in is mostly education and feminism. Mm -hmm. Education, well, as a student and later on as a teacher. It was, I don't know if you're aware of this, in 2006, more or less, we had like this strong revolution. It was called the Penguin Revolution because of the students. Their uniform is similar to the penguins. Oh, that's awesome. That's why we call students penguins. Cool. Uh, yeah, <laughs> because it, they were high school students, hmm. so they are—they were the penguins. They still are, and they 
started this movement mm. uh, of protest for education, free quality education. Now the students included non-sexist education. So those are the three main demands in terms of education. And, well, then as a uni student mm. as well, and then we included the deaf thing because <laughs> it's really huge there as well. As you okay. Probably you know this from other countries as well because mm. uh, it's really hard. And, well, later on as a teacher because as in many other countries, teachers are not really appreciated and we do have like a very important role uh, not just in education but also in society. On the other side, uh, feminism, which has been growing so much, mostly, I mean, especially in Argentina and Chile. And I would say the two main causes have been protesting against everything re related to uh, violence against women. Mm -hmm. uh, now it's included as also gender violence. And also abortion is a huge thing going on there because it's mostly banned. Also, there are many other protests in terms of, well, environment against many uh, giant companies, um, well, in terms of the ocean, like anything you can think of uh, in, that is part of the society has a reason to protest in Chile. Uh, also pensions, mm, that's okay. a huge thing over okay. there. Yeah, and the fact that uh, as justice was never uh, achieved, and that's why we're do having this situation today, uh, there's a lot of uh, Chilean memory, uh, as we call it, the memory. Mm. So, yeah, uh, a lot of our protest can be grouped with that as well, because this is all consequence of those old times. And 2019, we've kind of seen a bit of a climax with Chile and at least the reporting around Chile. Um, one of the statements someone said was, obviously, this is the culmination of 30 years of struggling or longer. Could you yeah. kind of break us down of what's happening now? Okay, um, where should I start? It's just, it, it's so much and it's so long. Mm. We talk about 30 years, but it actually started back in the 70s and even before that, we can talk about 60s. Mm. And in fact, we could go way back to colonization mm. because that's the root of everything. But going back to what's going on now, <laughs> it could get really long. So the thing is that mom a huge part of the population is protesting uh, as a summary to live with dignity. Mm. Decent, sal decent, decent salaries, like not just like a lot increase, no, just decent in order to survive. Uh, protection of uh, natural resources, nationalization of them as well. Uh, well, uh, issues related with women, of course, with education, with healthcare system, with the pensions, uh, workers' rights, it's like, Everything, everything. So, um, because, well, Chile is the most private country in the world. So everything um, that is supported by the Constitution and our law uh, just benefits private companies mm. and their owners, of course. Everything points to them. So anything you can think of just um, is it's not helping the people. So this is why the people are protesting. All very noble and right causes that... Any other citizen in the world would agree with, of course, I think. This started uh, precisely, like talking about the trigger, mm. uh, some students started, started protesting against the transport fee, 
the subway one, which is the one that a lot of people use in the capital of Santiago, mm-hmm. which is Santiago, because you only have the subway in Santiago. Gotcha. It's so also a very centralized country. Yeah, so it's the, it's the main point of access. <laughs> yes. Only point of access. Yeah, kind gotcha. of. And we also have buses. And there are so many other cities and regions, of course. But that's the other thing. Like All, poli- all our policies point to that city. Right. In particular, so that's another issue as well, mm. what's going on in the other cities and regions. So they skip, uh, how do you call this barrier oh, the, um, where you pay? Oh, where you oh, put turnstiles. The, turnstiles, yeah, yeah. those the Mikey, The Mikey doors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those ones. And I have seen these protests in other countries, and mm-hmm. I've seen videos. So they went massively and just skipped them, and they did this for, let's say, two, three days. Uh, last days, uh, everyone joined them. Mm-hmm. And then the president just sent the military to the streets from one day to the other. He didn't even talk to the students. He didn't even propose an idea, nothing. He just Instant militarization. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people just started disappearing, being kidnapped, being murdered. They were already gathering corpses, corpses and making mountains of them, and just they just disappear. So you, you have official numbers, of course but numbers are higher than the official ones. But the difference is that the people will change. The people have changed. The people have risen up. I think that's also a great um, allegory is that idea of the iceberg, of like we're seeing the tip of a very long story. (laughs) It's the straw that broke the camel's back. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. I remember hearing about it and being like, you know, uh, what is it, 30 pesos? Yeah, 30 Chilean pesos, which is um, a tiny amount. Very tiny amount. But it was already twice the price it should Mm. have been. So it should be half the price. Absolutely. And even when it's already double, they keep increasing it a bit more, a bit more, a bit more, Mm. like twice or three times a year. Yeah. And always a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. And it's like, come on. Mm. Absolutely. But it's just, it's uh, kind of emblematic of just 20 other problems that are... Exactly, at least. And this rise of protesting is occurring throughout Latin America, creating this ecosystem of people writing and rebelling. What's the feeling that's creating such a wave of uprising? Okay, so this makes me think about colonization processes Mm -hmm. uh, because we have this feeling. Many of of us, uh, well, especially my closest friends because of the way we think, and me personally, like, I see that this could be an opportunity for many Latin American countries to go through this process of crisis, unfortunately, of course. Mm. But maybe it's what's necessary for all these countries to get together Mm. because we have a similar history, a similar identity, and we've all been colonized, and you can still feel that, like, right on your face in everything like there are laws inter- international laws that uh, make things really hard for most of these countries you know and there's a lot of racism like just i mean i came to this country for example and yes it, it's been great very welcoming but for other things i feel discrimination just for being born in that place and I see this like an opportunity for Latin America to get united Mm. and to become the indigenous territory that it should be because the whole continent of America is an indigenous territory. Its real name is Avia Yala. That was the name before America. 
and that's like the good part of it like, like this yeah. huge hope that now is like the perfect time for that uh, it's like different conditions have uh, taken us to this moment mm. and our generation and the younger ones they're really I think they really have this new perspective of mm. this new change of era like I see this like a the start of something really huge. This could be really long, really long. But as I see it, like this system is already collapsing everywhere in the world. Mm. We can see it from the fires that are going on now in New South Wales and crisis in other countries, you know. And so as it is collapsing, and because it's meant to collapse, of course, I think that is... Um, what is telling us, okay, now is the time, now is the opportunity. And you also have this young generation who grew up with the idea that, okay, the war is going to end, <laughs> so we have nothing to lose. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like part of that also influenced um, their character, mm. I believe, the way I see it. And well, people in Chile also say, like, we lost everything, there's nothing to lose. Mm. We also lost fear, so they just go for it. So, yeah, that's how I see it. Um, and also, there's this huge rise of Aboriginal peoples. Mm. In Chile in particular, uh, the Mapuche people, they were always criminalized. Uh, well, in all the world, Aboriginal um, groups or people have been discriminized. And there's a huge rise of this Aboriginal identity. In fact, well, in Chile, I don't know why, but there are statues of the colonizers mm-hmm. or Pinochet's memorials, mm. you know. People just destroyed all of that. We've got the same thing over here. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen we've, that. We've <laughs> had, um, yeah, we've had recently uh, Captain Cook and, uh, like, your first settler statues being taken down. Oh, and yes. it's, it's a really interesting kind of movement that's happening because whilst the government of the day, the Victorian government, is trying to recognise that these uh Settlers, these so-called settlers and colonizers, were actually building on already pre-founded land. Obviously, um, they've, they've kind of gone down two routes. One of the routes is that they've put a little plaque saying, you know, acknowledging First Nations holders, but often those plaques are actually um, so hidden from view that you can't actually read them. In fact, one of them's up on a statue where you'd have to actually get up on top of the statue to read down <laughs> one of them. So it's thoroughly inappropriate. Yes, with it. Yeah, exactly. And another one is uh, the Burke and Wills statue, which is infamous in Melbourne. Uh, obviously, Burke and Wills is being a very controversial historical figure or figures. Um, and their satchels were actually removed whilst construction was happening around the Metro Tunnel. But they're planned to go back into Melbourne. So a lot of activists are up in arms going, hey, you almost got to removing these racist statues, but not quite there yet. So it's, it's interesting how that's happening all around the place. Yeah, I, I like talking about this like with people from different countries because at the end, we always get to the same conclusion, like it's the same thing everywhere, and we're also similar. And you know, but in our country, well, yeah, it's the same, it's the same. <laughs> because they never removed them. So the people did it mm. until now. Even the Pinochet yeah. ones, they mm. were still there. Yeah. And so one thing they did, which I really love, they just cut off, chop off their heads, mm. and they took it to indigenous status, like they were carrying it with their hands, you know? <laughs> and that was beautiful. beautiful. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to ask a question or shall I? Uh, so with Chile being 
overseas and us being in Australia, how do we kind of bridge that gap between the two mm. cultures and kind of how can we develop empathy and, you know, do the right thing? Because as you say, like the struggles that are happening in Chile are often happening in Australia and all over the world. So how do you kind of, I suppose, bridge that gap? Because it can feel very alien sometimes. And just show solidarity without being tokenistic. Yeah, well, it can be hard in a society like the one that we have today, and I mean in the whole world in terms of economy, which shapes people's identity mm. and behavior and culture, you know. So that is hard because I see a lot of individualist uh, feelings like everywhere, like people just caring about themselves and their own property and my own life, and you can be the best, you can achieve whatever you want, but only you. Mm. And there's so much competition everywhere, and you really have to let someone, take someone down, push someone down in order for you to go up. Uh, that's not right. But, and it's very hard for a lot of people to see it differently, mm. or to understand it from a different perspective. So uh, I guess we have to go to the younger generations, probably, unfortunately, but I guess so, because as you grow up, like your mind gets so structured that it's really hard to modify unless you personally have these strong feelings and you can grow up by yourself and get involved with your community. But maybe something that can be done is to show all the similarities that we have um, in a very explicit and obvious way because a lot of the problems that uh, we've seen in Chile, I can see them here. Mm. Uh, the big difference is that there's a lot of money flowing here. And people do have some warranties. Uh, mm. There are rights that they really get, and that's really good for you guys. Uh, but, uh, well, I've seen some measures that Prime Minister has taken during this last week, which is yeah. really uh, surprising and <laughs> shocking. Yeah, we're one of the few countries that don't have a Bill of Rights. With our constitution, like we have a constitution, but we don't have a Bill of Rights, unlike yeah. um, the US or the UK. Something that calls my attention mm. when I first got here, uh, because I came here on a 13th of January. Mm -hmm. So a couple of weeks after that, there's Australia Day, yeah. and I'm like, oh, so you have a day? Oh, that is nice. And then as soon as I started realizing what people were celebrating, I was like, are you really celebrating that you were colonized? Like, yeah. I don't get it. Even the most conservative person in my country would be like, this is so weird <laughs> because they're so proud of independence and everything. Yeah. And so th I think that is something that could lack here. Mm. Um, I, I don't want to, me, to be rude or mean or anything, no, like, no, but no. I, th this is why I feel that Australia may be one of the least woke countries in the world. Like, <laughs> really asleep. Yeah. You have never had any type of revolution uh, like socially speaking, yeah. like there hasn't been a true cultural change. Like it feels like a colony, because yeah. I mean people celebrate the Queen's birthday, and when I found out about that again, it was shocking. It was like, really? Wow! Imagine in Chile celebrating like the King of Spain's birthday. Like that would be bizarre. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of touch back on is you mentioned uh, that Scott Morrison's been introducing some new laws against protesting in the country, which are just bonkers, like crazy. And one thing I wanted to kind of get your perspective of is in Chile, obviously, we're seeing people in the throes of revolting and calling out against our people. Mm. 
in Australia, <clears throat> we seem like we're slowly sliding towards that. Like we're slowly sliding so. towards more of a more and more of an authoritative and police state. Well, what's your thoughts with kind of where Australia could potentially go with this? Maybe, uh, I mean, it can be hard because of the, of the identity that people have here mm -hmm. in Australia. Uh, I do love to see groups here in Melbourne <laughs> of activists and people who are really doing some things. But I don't know. It could be a decade. It could be a couple. Mm. Uh, well, I do think that thanks to this extreme prime minister that you have, he's helping the people be more aware because he's been so obvious. Mm. And that's what happened in Chile. Everything got so obvious. Um, injustice, injustice was so explicit, like right on your face, that you don't have to be some kind of extremist or radical in your way of thinking because it's like reality comes first. And it's like we are neighbors. So as long as you have that, you can see right on your face that this is not right. And I think this could be something that could happen here. Mm. You know, and now in Chile, they just passed through, uh, it's going to the Senate now, they just passed through the parliament this law that criminalizes protest. So now, if you could just throw a rock, or the police could say, hey, you threw a rock, and they, they will give you five years in prison mm -hmm. just for protesting, which is a legitimate right. And it was very sad to see people from the left supporting this bill. Mm. So we are really hurt. Uh, this whole political class uh, is just so corrupt. They're corrupted. And I hope they all just go away. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> somehow. <laughs> go away. Somehow. Because we're creating, we want to create a new country, a new society. Yeah. And mm. we also need new representation. Mm. And it's part of it. Yeah. And we cannot trust them anymore. So probably, yeah, it, it could be something, s I don't know if similar, because mm. there are different... There's a different context here, Absolutely. but it will come in yeah. Australia, yes, eventually. I was gonna, I was gonna say you brought up two things which I thought were really interesting. Um, one, opportunity in protest, which is something we don't usually think about. We usually think about people getting angry and screaming, but we don't think of the opportunity born out of it. At least in Australia, I think we don't. And two, I was thinking uh, you mentioned necessity why protests are a, necess a necessity at this point. And I was wondering if I could just get you to talk on, because a lot of protesting in Australia is seen as frivolous almost. Um, you know, when young people are out in the street, a lot of people dismiss them or seek to belittle them. And there's a lot of stigma around protesting. Why do you think protesting is necessary? Well, it is necessary. It's like a baby who cries because it's starving. <laughs> like, you need to tell somehow that something is not right. And it's not a bad thing at all. Like, imagine that you offer any service. You want some feedback. Mm. So protesting is that. It's just giving feedback to your country, <laughs> like, in a very simple way. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So eventually it's that. It's, it doesn't mean that you're angry with, at everything. It just is the opposite, actually. You care so much. You want to see everyone living a better life. That you're like, hey, what do we do? Why don't we do this to improve our lifestyle? This can be better for all of us. And those are the reasons for protesting. Like, if you just care about yourself, you will never be able to understand a social cause. Mm. That's the thing, unfortunately. And that's why um, big companies use the government to promote this culture of just self-involvement and people just caring about themselves, uh, you know, as liberalism. But... Uh, protest it is necessary, and I think a lot of people have this 
um, like stigma on it because it, like if you go to the bottom it's just fear mm. it's fear and that's why for example in our country we really know about this because it, we've been through that uh, there was a whole decade, let's say the, 90, the 90s, after the dictatorship had like officially finished, mm -hmm. in a way, if you could say that, uh, people just wanted to rest, to live in peace, kind of, if it was possible, uh, because they were traumatized. Mm -hmm. And not, it didn't, nothing happened like in that decade, like not much. A lot was going on under the carpet, in a way, but people were really afraid of the consequences of everything. They didn't want a dictatorship to come back again. But eventually, uh, it doesn't matter how much you deny something, the problem is still there. And at some point, it's going to collapse because that's part of the cycle. It has to explode s somewhere, somehow. And that's what happened now. Like We couldn't handle this anymore. We couldn't bear with it. So... Uh, yeah, that's why this whole explosion appeared and everything. Yeah, yeah. But it is so necessary. And you also create community through this. So the beautiful thing, despite the horror, which is huge and is terrible, the other side has been people finding each other. So you can see a lot of signs and posters saying, we found each other. Let's never leave each other again. Um, Let's stay together. We love each other again because that's the true essence of humanity. You can only become human among other humans. If you live by yourself in the middle of the jungle, you won't be a human. You will be a person physically, but you won't learn a language. You probably you won't love anyone. Like You won't develop anything, uh, not your mind at least. So the closer we are, the more humans we are. Sorry, the more human we are. And that's why I feel really sad about the conditions of this economical system that conditions most of us to just become consumers and just caring about ourselves. And I think it's so terrible. You're just walking on the street. You see a lot of homeless people, and you just have to pretend they're not there. Like, mm. sometimes it's like, okay, here you are, but it's like, I won't change their lives. Like, that's why we need to protest. We need to make changes to the structures. Break down those barriers. Yes, yes. Mm. So the priority is for us to live with dignity, with decency, and we need to stay together to stay strong. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much for inviting me.
So concluding with that kind of discussion with Valentina, Eleanor, revolution in Australia, viva la revolution, what's your thoughts? VCE Revolutions Study Design 2050, Australian Revolution. Ooh, that, that would have to, yeah, okay. Uh, and what would that look like to you? Look, I feel like an, a revolution in Australia would probably have to have something to do with capitalism, mm. native land rights, yep. feminism, Ooh. and just a whole bunch of other things at this point. Yeah, I think there'd be a lot of First Nation justice. However, what it does bring it back, what this kind of brings back for me is this idea of the rising anger we've seen in Australia spearheaded by a lot of different protest groups. And the different protest groups, I mean, Valentino makes a great point, the idea of this like there's lots of intersections between different different groups but at the same time we're also isolated to our separate yeah this this is our climate group this is our feminism group Mm. this is our other group yeah we were trying to go to a protest the other day and it was like female climate justice blah 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 blah. like it was like all these little markers and it was it was like okay that's super cool that you're doing it but also you feel so splintered and even within the protest itself, you'll then have this is the Brunswick climate group, this is this school climate mm. group, and then you're, you're not actually unifying with people in a protest. Like you're unified, unified by a cause, but you're not unified. And I guess this is where you and I kind of diverge a bit because I I'm of the opinion that. Pfft, does not matter. Anyone's making noise. I always like to think of the, the tap metaphor, which is an activist metaphor, where basically you, the, every drip contributes to a wider cause. But what's your thoughts? Because I know, for example, you have there's certain groups that you're like, oh, do we want to go with, or don't we want to go with, or what, what's your thoughts? Well, basically, am I misquoting you? <laughs> no, you're not misquoting me. But basically, I have this idea that awareness is not enough, hmm. and I think that a lot of activist groups and a lot of activists or um, like activist actions, like mm. changing your icon on Instagram or whatever like that, they're great at raising awareness, but what change do they actually make? And I'm going to talk about Extinction Rebellion because, like, I ain't their biggest fan. I like what they stand for and all that sort of stuff, but they're, they're really good at making a lot of noise and getting people talking about them. But are people talking about climate justice or are they talking about Extinction Rebellion? No. And also, the people that are talking about Extinction Rebellion and actually being like, yeah, they have a good point, are not the people that actually need to hear this. Mm. Like, is Scummo, because remember, we call him Scummo, not Scomo, because he likes Scomo. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> Thanks, Reddit. Thanks, Reddit. <laughs> You're not even on Reddit. I am. <laughs> oh, anyway. Sorry, Stella's just, Stella's just nitpicking on Reddit. Subscriptions. Um, <laughs> subscriptions yes. to Reddit. Don't you have subscriptions to Reddit? No. Oh, shit. I guess. Okay. Um, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not with the internet, so let's just keep going. Anyway, um, is Scummo going to listen to Extinction Rebellion and be like, yeah, I should really make some legislation for the climate change? No. No, he's not. Oh, I hate that. I, I, I mean, I totally I understand where you're coming from. The, the feeling I always get is like, as El Gore said, and I'm going to do a throwback to El Gore, and <laughs> it's an inconvenient truth. Climate, the climate crisis that we are living in that has changed our climate irrevocably is an inconvenient truth, and it's inconvenient. It's not comfy. It's not cool, but it's something that we have to confront. We have to meet up to that, and I feel like anyone making noise about it is good. Oh. 
Here, here's another throwback. Oh, no. Einstein, if Ooh. you're doing the same thing Ooh. over and over again, isn't that the definition of insanity? Shit. You're protesting over and over again, making the same noise, doing the same blockades. Has it made a difference? But, no. Well, but, but the question is, what difference are we trying to make? Like, if we're trying to make awareness attention thing. I think yes. we're, we're all aware of climate change at this point, and even the people who are aware of it aren't believing in it. Mm-hmm. Even if you've got scientists. Okay, but then, like... What other what other protests would you like? Because, for example, I know I didn't have trouble with the the vegan protests this year, the the ones that went onto farmers' blocks of, and land. Yeah. I I didn't have a lot of problem with that because, again, I'm very much that disrupt, do whatever you can. And I thought it was great that activists were getting out there and you know showing showing their opinions. At the same time, there was a huge kickback. Uh, legislation's been introduced, which we'll get onto later, <clears throat> in response to it. Mm. And it was another unpopular tactic. And what, from my perspective, what I see is just like any form of protest, boycotting has been denounced and condemned. This vegan, you know, vegans in the middle of Fed Square or on farmers' properties has been denounced, condemned. People marching and screaming has been denounced, condemned. People dancing in the street to like bad disco beats while also being like, climate change is happening, guys. Cool. <clears throat> Don't dig it. <laughs> Leave it in the ground. It's time to get with it. But it all gets denounced and it all gets belittled and dismissed. And the problem is, from my perspective, I'm like, well, when is when is when are we going to find the perfect way to protest that somehow gets everyone on board? I don't think it's going to happen. And that's where... I hate, like I have to agree with you that I, I I can't come up with this perfect method of being like yeah if we protest like this the politicians are going to listen to us and it's going to be enough to mm. to get into the mainstream media mm. but I just think that when you go to those like extremes of like gluing yourself to Fed Square mm. it almost brings up this question of are you actually doing yourself a disservice are you doing your cause a disservice are you just let me go into PR mode for a second because, you know, I'm a uni <laughs> student. But are you actually damaging your brand? Shit. Are you, like, because people aren't going to think of you as the people uh, standing up for animal rights. They're oh. going to think of you as the people that made them late for work, that are a bit extreme. Yeah, you create that kind of classic conditioning uh, Pavlov's dog sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> like, Someone says protest and the other people go, like, yeah. <laughs> like, Even reflex. like when you say the word vegan protest, you're just like, oh yeah, those guys. Oh, oh, I'm, I'm sad about it. I understand, I understand the perspective. And I think another part, perhaps, with this idea of revolution and this idea of the threshold when people, you know, will actually step up to confront what's going on in their own capacity and time, is just that capacity. I mean, at the moment, protests, at least the ones that are advertised, are ones that occurred during people's work time or people's family time or people's actual time off, you know? And it's, I I know from my own personal experience going to a lot of protests, it's like, oh shit, there's another protest. I really want to go because I deeply believe in the cause, but I also promised my mom I'd like paint the kitchen this weekend. (laughs) And it's that constant toss up and compromise and negotiation, especially also I've watched a lot of uh, my friends that have gone through this process get arrested. And my partner and I were at a protest that we're going to chat about in a moment. And his mum texted him with like the cutest message, where it was just like, "Think about what arrest could do for your future." <laughs> and I at the time was like, <laughs> "Far out, no thanks, whatever, right?" <laughs> Good old mum, but like, we'll get on with the protest. But, but at the same time, if like, you get like, arrested, you might not be able to travel overseas. Yeah, and he's and he's a teacher. Like that's not a good branding for a teacher, you know. So it's. I don't know how we compromise that, yeah. that, that, ch- 
change. You see, I might be considered a little vanilla in my protesting because, <laughs> you know. That's bad. Oh. <laughs> okay, maybe not vanilla. I I, yeah, we're I might getting, be a little. Getting the um, cut off. <laughs> I might be considered a little beige in my protesting no, just because. That's worse, but yeah, we keep going. <laughs> I just. I'm probably not super comfortable going to a protest where my body or if I'm. W- I'm probably not super willing to go to a protest where I might be harmed mm. or I might get arrested. And that's the two things. Even though I might believe in a cause 100%, mm. I don't trust other people. Mm. I don't trust the other people involved in protests. I don't trust the police. But also, I sometimes think that when these protests happen, they haven't been thought through properly. Okay, yes, I'll, I'll go with you. Um Let's look at the university walkout strike. Mm -hmm. Definitely not a violent protest, very peaceful, and while people were yelling and doing all that sort of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. We marched to the GHD buildings, which are the consultants working on Adani. And my dad's a consultant, and I told him, oh, yeah, we're we're just marching to some building. And he's like, what building? I'm like, I don't know. Just just some consultants in the city working on Adani. And he's like, yeah. So, and he used his, you know, disapproving dad voice. So, Eleanor, you're going to protest and you don't even know what you're protesting? And I'm like, oof. I'm like, yeah, but they're, they're working on a Dani, so it's, it's bad. It's bad. Yeah, it's a Dani. And then I was like, I actually heard um, someone explain to me, like, what GHD are actually doing in a Dani and that they're actually working within kind of legal parameters. So it's like a tick box of like yeah. what's legal, what's not legal. And so as much as I am anti Adani, I'm also like, yeah, marching it's like protesting GHD isn't gonna stop anything. Mm-mm. And we have had these discussions, especially within our group when we were leading up to this process of like direct your energy towards the right people. I yeah. mean, again, I'm very much of that mind of just <laughs> yell at whatever. Um, <laughs> make some noise. Just yell into the void. But it is it is a, a legitimate critique that you want to be making sure you're directing it. And I also think you touch up on a brilliant point, which is like um, when you're at a protest, you should know what the protest is about. Yeah. It's a scary thing to think that you wouldn't. You uh, like I thought I was so on top of it. I was so woke. Like, yeah, I'm going to protest like the climate and like Dani. <laughs> and then I realized, wait, no, I'm just like... I don't know why I'm here. I'm just a twat. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am. I'm a twat. <laughs> well, with that kind of with that kind of in mind, I wanted to bring you. I wanted to have a quick discussion with you about a protest that did actually put bodies in the way of harm, and this is of course the IMARC protest that went on earlier this year. So this protest came in the form of a human blockade surrounding this year's International Mining Resources Conference, IMARC, for short. Uh, basically, it's a big forum where representatives from different coal and mining companies collect and they make discussions about corporate initiatives, the new latest trends. It's made for networking and like new industry practices. Yeah. Big discussions. And the demonstrations uh, thinking around the event was that these delegates hold a huge amount of power in the use of non-renewable energy sources, especially within Australia, and are contributing to fueling the climate crisis we are living in. And to be fair, science is on their side. <laughs> with that statement. Um, but therefore, these protesters wanted to show these, as they called it, climate criminals, uh, that their actions were not respected and representative of the people, of what the people kind of wanted. Meanwhile, the media chucked out headlines like Andrew Bolt's um, climate change is merely an excuse to agitate and, you know, the Herald Sun's kind of spiel. Um, now, I was there, Eleanor. Uh, you were not. Mm. I was just wondering, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about, like, painting the scene, but I just wanted to get kind of your opinions right. on it. So I, I didn't go, and it 
wasn't a fully conscious decision because I think like a lot of my protests I either find out through one of two ways, friends or Facebook. Mm. And this was one that I remember you mentioning to me, oh, yeah, I'm going to go. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. Um, but then just didn't think about it again, didn't really see it on Facebook or anything, so didn't go. And then I remember seeing, once again, good old Reddit, subreddit r slash Melbourne, um, footage of the protest and seeing how violent it was mm. and the police action. I was like, wow, okay. And I knew you were there, so I was like, okay, I've, I've got to watch the news. I'm going to watch the news and see if Eidwin's there. Mm. And I watched it, and they were just talking about how, like, the protests were out of control, that they were being super, super violent, that they were you know, agitating, they were, like, shoving little old men and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. No, there was actually, like, yeah. you know, that, all that sort of footage, and I was like, oh, no. Yeah. I don't, why would you do something like and that? I, I can remember from our initial conversations, because I think we did call or chat, and you were kind of like, yeah, but like, what's going on? Yeah. And I was like, no, it's important. And you're like, yeah, but what's going on? Yeah. Do you want to kind of break that down? Because that, that, that was a very understandable perspective to have from someone on the outside yeah. of it. I was very much like, okay, so I know Idwin, and I can see what I'm seeing on the news. And this isn't just one news outlet. <clears throat> and this isn't one of your dodgy news outlets. <clears throat> this is the ABC, the Age, mm. the Sydney Morning Herald, all the all these good papers, and they're showing all of this. And but then I know you, mm. and I was like, you wouldn't participate in something that was actually like hurting people, yeah, and that yeah. kind of crazy. So I remember messaging you and being like, hey, one, are you okay? Yeah, because I remember being absolutely terrified that you'd been like gunned down or whatever. <laughs> Pepper spray. Um, yeah, pepper spray. <laughs> to keep it light, yep. yeah. Um, I remember just fearing that. But then I also remember hearing, like, like what is actually going on? Because I cannot tell. Because the things I'm seeing online from mm. less than, like, authentic sources yep. versus what I'm seeing in the news are two completely different things. Mm. And I remember after I had that conversation with you, my parents and I sat down and watched the news because, you know, secret, I'm a 60-year-old woman. <laughs> watches the ABC News with their parents. Nice. Um, and I was saying, oh, no, 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 Idwin said this, Idwin said this, like, this is this is what's yeah. happening. And my parents were like, no, 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 Eleanor. But does Idwin know? And, and it's and it's also that I don't want to shut down that, that part of criticism because I think that is so important to have. But um, let, let me give you, paint you kind of a picture of what was the scene on the day because it was definitely a lot. It's also essential to mention that uh, the topics of the day of why IMARC, the IMARC conference was actually protested against covered an array of different intersecting topics. So we had uh, protests against the occupation of Palestine. We had calls for larger native title rights acts. Um, there was also protests from the Philippines uh, against mining corporation Oceana Gold and also justice for West Papua in the face of ongoing colonisation. Uh, there were also a lot of doctors and scientists giving their opinions. Now, we're not going to be focusing on any of these specific struggles. Instead, we're going to be focusing on the protest itself, because that's why we're here today. Mm -hmm. But if you are interested in finding out about those struggles, uh, you can listen to 3CR's coverage of it. So, yeah, this like what you were just saying about the, that these intersectional causes reminds me of when we were at the university walkouts right together, uh, the chant started... Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And we were there with a friend, and the friend was like, okay, yeah, I definitely believe in that cause, but why are they chanting this now? At a climate rally. Yeah. Hmm. And I was like, I was kind of thinking the same thing, but I remember you saying, like, can you, do you remember what you said to us? Um, so I made the point that um, 
in protest there's a lot of there's a lot of intersecting struggles or struggles intersect and a common theme of injustice and for example something like climate change uh, really does have First Nations justice as a major part of that so you can't have climate change justice without First Nations justice so it's important to recognise those intersections and that kind of makes us stronger in protest and at first when you you hear it you might go what? and then you actually think about it for a second and you're like actually no that makes complete sense I'm not even going to question that yeah and for anyone listening to this podcast, you know, as well, if, you, if you're not aware of iMark, let me break it down. Um, and then we're going to have someone who was at also at iMark kind of come in and talk further. But basically the scene was set up like this. We had the building, um, which is the ex- Melbourne Exhibition Centre, located over the river in Southbank. And we had protesters wrapping around the building. So probably about 200 to 300 protesters. Uh, Crikey, the magazine said there was 400 people. But <clears throat> honestly, when I was there on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, there weren't, I would have said, more 300. Uh, the blockade went from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. On Monday, it was just a general protest. And then the blockade was initiated over those next three days when the actual conference started. And the whole idea was to prevent um, easy access to the delegates that were entering. Uh, funnily enough, on the first day, there was actually also a union conference and it was negotiated with the unions and the IMARC blockade protesting for the IMARC, the unionists to be allowed to be <laughs> led into the building. Uh, so it was, it was kind of interesting. But that was on the side of the protesters, basically just this big blockade, people singing, people chatting, lots of speeches. On the other side was the 7,000 delegates. And it is also, it's worth mentioning that uh, it was a lot more complex than just kind of like all, ah, you're climate criminals, like, Yes, there were some of the top companies which produced some of the top emissions in the world. Uh, but we also had uh, sustainability experts and also like um, just think tanks that were looking to help, you know, kind of increase the workforce or move towards, in some cases, more sustainable options. Um, that being said, we also had, as I said, representatives from the uh, we had representatives from the five of the top 100 companies that contribute to 70 percent of the world's emissions. So there Yikes. was there were some of the big names such as like Rio Tinto and Oceana Gold. <clears throat> um, now, with, with that kind of in mind, you know, the blockade, people in suits trying to get through the blockade. We also had 300 police officers. And this is one of the biggest critiques to come out of the day. Wait, so there were 300 protesters and 300 police officers. Yes. Yeah. I'm not great at maths, but... One-to-one. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting because they kind of lined... They, they stood behind the blockade, and they all kind of stood with that very, you know, authoritative stance and all that sort of stuff. Um, but they would they would kind of... It was very odd being there because they'd kind of oscillate where and change where they were in positioning. So every now and again, they'd be in one single line behind the blockade, and then a group of 10 people would move behind one part of the blockade, and then, like, they'd push out. Like, they, they just changed position a lot. So it was very hard to tell where they were at what time. Um, and they kind of controlled the blockade and opened up an actual entrance so that the climate um, corporates could actually be allowed, or sorry, the coal corporates could actually be allowed into the building. Um, it was also important to note that this was a peaceful protest, but one of the biggest things to kind of come out of it from my perspective was the fact that we did have huge police altercations with the audience, and this was kind of also oh, with the protesters, and this was a source of heavy critique. Um, instead of kind of going in and giving our back and forth, we're actually going to get um, Alish to come in and kind of tell us her side of the story. Alish was a journalist on the day who unfortunately got pepper sprayed during one of these police kind of crowd control moments. And to reiterate, she was not a protester. She was a journalist. So right off the bat, why were you sent to cover the demonstration and what did you see? 
So I report for Farago Magazine. We are the University of Melbourne student publication. So the main reason we were there is because our university had a contingent of students. And the main, I guess, purpose of our magazine is to report on issues that impact Melbourne University students. So that was the main reason we were there. Um, We'd also been following um, myself and a couple other reporters who were there. We'd been following all the climate movements um, for the whole year. So it was just part of, I guess, a continuing um, reporting and coverage um, of the climate protests. From discussions, you said that you got there on Wednesday, is that correct? So that was actually the second day of the IMARC protest. Just to catch people up, uh, Monday was kind of like a general protest, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday was the IMARC conference and therefore the blockade of people surrounding it. Yeah, so we'd had uh, reporters there on the Tuesday, and the Tuesday was sort of the day when, I guess, tensions, I mean, it's sort of this really cliched term that everyone in media has sort of been using, like, tensions erupted between protesters <laughs> and police. So true, though. It did. Um, <laughs> it did, but I don't know if tensions is the right word mm. that I would use to describe it. Um, but we saw a lot of footage coming out, um, mm. I guess, of pepper spraying, you know, people fighting with it like fighting um with each other so we went down really early on Wednesday we hadn't anticipated that um anything would have been that the police would have behaved the way that they did um or that it would have been such a big scene down there so we went down really early um because we there were um we'd heard rumors that a couple of University of Melbourne students had actually been arrested on the first day so we went down nice and early we were there I think about quarter to nine in the morning. So, yeah, bright and early we arrived just to see what would happen during the day. Mm. And when you first got there, I mean, what was your first impressions as a reporter? Like, especially going in there with, like, I've got to get the story. Like, what did you see? Let's get the scoop. Let's get the scoop. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the another part of the reason that we went early as well is mm. because when people were arriving at the conference, so the conference started at 9am every day. So when people were arriving to the conference, that's when we were seeing... Um, you know, people were booing or, you know, yelling shame at all of the mining executives coming in. So I guess from my perspective, we sort of went in there looking to see really who was, I guess, initiating um, these sort of, like, disruptions. So can you tell us then what happened to you when you were there? Yeah, so it was about 9.30 in the morning, and um, so we'd only been there best part of, yeah, half an hour or so. And um, myself and a fellow reporter, we walked around to one side of the blockade. So it was sort of, it was a confusing line, I guess, of individuals zigzagging all over the place. And we ran around the side and um, we were standing back easily five metres from the physical blockade itself, um, just sort of wanting to observe. That's the only reason we'd walked over there. And all of a sudden... Um, I heard some raised voices, but we were so far away that we couldn't exactly hear what was going on. And all of a sudden, it I guess happened in a split second, people started moving and pepper spray just came out into the crowd. And it hit me straight in the face. Um, it got in my eyes, my mouth, um, yeah, straight on my neck as well. And... Um, yeah, I got pepper sprayed. I guess that's what happened to me in um, the short of it. But, um, yeah, we weren't there protesting and it wasn't being sprayed at anyone in particular. It was just being sprayed out into a crowd. Yeah, from the way the way I kind of 
uh, noticed on the few days I was there, it was a crowd control method. So it'd be kind of like you'd see a bit of shoving happening between, obviously, the police and the blockade. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it'd be, it, it was almost a snap second. It'd be like the, there was like pushing and then all of a sudden the pepper spray would come straight out and it would just be a wide spray of people. Yeah, and so we, I mean, typical journo afterwards, I was like, I must investigate how <laughs> you're allowed to use pepper spray. Mm. Um because like, I was just angry. Like, I'd actually, I was talking to a friend the night before. I'd been really scared about going because I'd seen all of, you know, the videos from the day before. Mm. And I was like, crap, you know, like, what if I get pepper sprayed? And I'd had this yeah. really bad dream. I was like, like, what if I'm interviewing somebody and, like, I get pepper sprayed? Like, damn, that would really hurt. I don't want to do that. And then I was there for half an hour. Yeah. Told my friend. She was like, she couldn't believe it. Um, But, yeah, you're only supposed to use pepper spray if and if you fear for your life so it's supposed to be like last resort um oh, really? fearing for your life fearing for the lives of others like um that's what we were reading and generally when you what we couldn't understand is if police were really fearing for their lives they didn't have any of the clear um like the body armor? The body armor they had no body armor they didn't have any like, the shields i guess if you want to call right them that shields? you yeah. Right gear, right Right yeah. gear, yeah. They didn't have any of that. So mm. it was sort of this big leap to go from people are just standing linked arms. They don't have any weapons. They don't, like, they don't have anything. And we actually found a video, and I ended up sending it into the police. I filed a formal complaint, of which I still have not heard anything back, nor do I expect to hear anything back about it. Um, and we found a video. So the person who ended up spraying us, we couldn't see... I physically couldn't see who it was, but Mm. we did find a video of it. Um, And the idea is everyone in the – like the police chief or police commander, whoever it was who did the press conference, Mm. was like, media didn't listen. We told them to move back because I wasn't the only media pepper sprayed. There was a guy from Channel 9 who got some residual pepper spray. I believe someone from – I think it was Sky News. It was definitely a more – conservative um, Mm. news outlet, not that they reported on it, a cameraman from that, and they just kept saying media weren't listening to us, they weren't filling out instructions, we warned that this would happen, but we found a video that was this particular individual who sprayed, pushes his way through police and just, like, reaches his arm through, like, is making his way, like, he is not the first person at the blockade. So Mm. he's not the first police officer standing right in front. So the person who you would assume would be dealing with the crowd. He pushes his way through and just, like, simultaneously while he's spraying around is just, like, screaming back off to Mm. everybody. Mm. So, yeah, it's being used more as a crowd control measure where you're, A, supposed to give warning that you're going to use it, and you are also supposed to give people time to react to your back-off message. So the fact that this individual just came out simultaneously back off while he's also spraying people. Um, yeah, it was really insane to watch back um, because it just seemed like a blatant, you know, disregard for these individuals who were on the blockade and also, like, people walking past. Like, we had families walking past during the day, people who were just going about... Mm their everyday lives south wharf is nearby people who are going shopping like anyone could have been there walking through or just been like what's going on here and went to have a look and they 
I mean, as far as I'm aware, it didn't happen, but where we were standing, anyone could have been there and could have been sprayed. And you touched on it implicitly, but I want to say explicitly, journalists are supposed to be exempt from getting things like pepper spray and that, that sort of stuff, you know? Not necessarily, that's not how it works out all the time, but like... IMARC really caught me as something uh, unprecedented in the way of the fact that we had so many journalists coming out of it going, I got shoved, I got pushed, I got crushed, I got pepper sprayed. It, it was And not by protesters. And not by protesters. Yeah, it's such a it's such a weird energy. It almost just felt like it just felt like a lot of anger and resentment. Mm. Um on both sides and understandably from protesters, like being pepper sprayed and you know, being shoved and horses being pushed into these protesters. Mm. So, yeah, but I couldn't, I just couldn't work it out from the police perspective. And I mean, uh, yeah, as journalists, um, I mean, there were some instances like um, a particular journalist from Channel 7 who, I mean, it's it's Paul Dowes <laughs> from Channel 7. I was like, oh, do I name him? But he definitely wasn't following instruction on the day. Not that that justifies mm. physical force against him, but I think that's sort of the example that everyone saw. And I got so much hate on Twitter. So I had so many boomers, like, threatening me on Twitter and just being like, toughen up, honey. Like, you don't, you shouldn't be that close. Or, you know, were you just a reporter? Like, if you were that close, you yeah. must have been a protester. Like all this sort of stuff and police being like, you need to observe further back. And it's like, well, how how do you expect people to get information if, especially it's something that's a peaceful protest, you, you don't really expect to be near a peaceful protest and potentially be shoved or pushed or pepper sprayed. Um, and, yeah, the expectation that, well, you guys should have just moved back or you should have observed from a different place. I was five metres away and I couldn't hear what was happening at the blockade. If I had gone back any further, I wouldn't have been able to see or hear anything at all. So it's just such a stupid argument. Um, mm. I mean, my opinion of it was that it was a stupid <laughs> argument. Yeah. Those are my feelings about that. <laughs> so after, like, experiencing all of that, which is just, it's a lot, how do you feel about protesting in Australia going forward? Um, It's... I was thinking about it on the way here. I was... Because I, like, I knew what you guys were doing. And I just... I think it, it depends on the type of protest. I mean... I think that a lot of my, like, observations and, like, reporting has often been like, climate protests. So I think I can mm. only, um, you know, as, as a student journalist can speak about those. But it's a really, really terrifying space, I think, to be in. Today I was reading this article um, about a former high court judge who was saying that young people need to be more radical and they're not protesting enough and like <laughs> it's on the Sydney Morning Herald um, I would say there's like the one guy out there saying that of his generation yeah it's like this old guy former high court judge was wow. like students aren't like standing up and they need to be more radical and where protests go I th I just don't know Not I don't think they're going to stop happening I think if anything we learn from IMARC on the day that I was there, um, after I got sprayed, 
we had people there and all these people that I didn't know came up to me and someone, they handed me a new change of clothes. They were like, I was here yesterday, I got pepper sprayed, best thing you need is a change of clothes. So the fact that someone had been pepper sprayed the day before and not only came back, but came back with the expectation that they would probably get sprayed again, but it was still important enough for them to be there that they came prepared to stay. So I don't necessarily think that protesting will stop. I just think that why well, worry that these relations between like police and government and protesters it just might get more and more hostile i think the fact that we had i mean at the time that we recorded this there was a couple of days ago um legal observers released this 45 page mm. report saying i think the direct quote was police set the tone of violence yes. at imark yeah that was the uh, melbourne activist legal support yeah so this 45-page report from legal observers, mm. so now it's, it's not just protesters saying it, it's legal observers, but you still have mainstream media, g- governments and police, so people who are like three key groups who are going to be involved in these protests, still adamantly taking the side of corporations. Um, it's just a really scary space to be in. People not feel like people have a right to protest, but the fact that people go in expecting now, like for people to go back to IMARC expecting to be pepper sprayed for doing nothing but standing there, it's just a really, I think it's a really scary space to be in. Um, so I don't know where to go from here. It's definitely something that I'm trying to learn and navigating social media um, platforms like Twitter where people get their news, but maybe not necessarily from a news source. Mm. Maybe those are ways to get more information out. Um, The video footage um, from the Wednesday that I was there, that, you know, got a little bit more attention. So I think it's more about changing the way that we receive our information, the sources that we get our information from, because I just don't think that the echo chambers that mainstream media have sort of created... Mm. um, even the ABC, I was really disappointed with the ABC. Like, I thought that that coverage was going to be a little bit more balanced, but... It really wasn't. It, Channel 9, the... Oh, I can't remember his name, which is really bad, but his <laughs> first name was Mark. Um, but the Wednesday coverage, because it's the day that the reporter had been had got some residual pepper spray in his mm. eye and he'd been shoved. So that I was quite impressed with, like the most of the segment is just interviews from protesters being like, this is why we're here, like, this is what's been Mm. happening to us. Um, But, yeah, so stuff like that, like, giving space and voice to people who, like, no one's going to sit and interview all these protesters for a piece. Like, you'll Mm. talk to one person and, you know, you you try and tick all the boxes when you're writing a story or producing, like, a story. You're like, okay, I'll talk to one person from this side and one person from this side and that's done. I've... I've been, un- I've been subjective and I've avoided bias, but, yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely think we need to change the way that we receive information and journalists definitely need to um, push boundaries a little bit more um, in how safe they play um, things and um, I guess not trying to fall into, like, sort of traditional traps of, like, Everyone already thinks protesters are bad, so why don't we just keep rolling with this coverage? Keep rolling with that. (laughs) Keep rolling with that. Like, Mm. you get backlash from people if you try and say otherwise, and 
it's media as a as they everyone says is a dying industry. So you got to get clicks. You've got to <laughs> resurrect it. We've with people like you've got to rely on clicks. You've got to rely on people. So yeah, it's a really tough space to navigate. Tough space to navigate. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I, I just want to acknowledge like it. I mark was a bit of a turning point for me for just the violence I witnessed, and obviously I didn't get pepper sprayed. I actually managed to avoid it every time, which is very weird. Very lucky. Very lucky, exactly. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, especially as you said, this is scary stuff. Um, and I think it was—it's important to acknowledge that. But yeah, thank you very much for coming. No, on. thank you so much for having me. That was such an enlightening conversation with Ailish for me because, as we've discussed, I was an outsider with iMark. I wasn't there, and I kind of had these two separate trains of thought going at the same time, a bit of the 1984 double-think, the, but did you do something? Mm. Did the protesters shove first <clears throat> versus police brutality? Oh, my God, they're evil. Yeah. And so seeing that kind of, like, helped reconcile that, that, there was definitely some, not even definitely some, there was overuse of police force. Mm. I think it's uh, extremely validating to be able to hear um, Alicia's kind of discussion around it and story around it. And one of the things it brought up for me was the huge amount of privilege that I'm situated in to be able to go to a protest and go, wow, police brutality, I've never seen that before, right? That is an extraordinarily privileged statement to make. make. And one of the leading conversations out of the IMARC protests was led by First Nations um, protesters who were like, yo, wake up, this thing has been happening since colonisation has started. You need to be on the same page in what's happening. Mm. And so that was one thing that I found uh, confronting, I'm going to be honest and lame, confronting. In that way, it was like, okay, we, I really do need to pick up my awareness to the story and believe people when they come forward with those stories. And it's so easy to, as you said, do that double think, trust the establishment. Mm. But for me, IMARC really reinforced that the establishment is not our friend and is not there to protect us. 
sorry, did you have something? And, to uh, it's just one of those things, like, I usually pride myself on being one of those people who's like, mm. yeah, no, I know the truth. I look for the truth. And this time, I just, like, I got it wrong. And and that's also absolutely fine, but it's, it's, it's where we go from that. Um, <clears throat> But touching on that kind of... Uh, acknowledging that the, we are seeing this clampdown, that the people aren't protecting us, is this ramp up in anti-protest sentiment and laws that we are seeing in this country, um, which are just terrifying, terrifying. Um, we've not only had politicians coming out with direct quotes, kind of belittling uh, protesters, you know, calling them silly, dull bludgers, ignorant, but we've also seen uh, a multitude of laws brought in that systematically shut down the option to protest. And to kind of, as we said, explain more, we've got uh, one of our segments of Dante coming in to run us through some of the changes that we've been seeing. Much of the current Australian government's rhetoric signifies its hostility towards protest. As we all heard at the beginning of the podcast, Peter Dutton has called for public humiliation of demonstrators. But this statement is part of a much wider narrative used by the right wing of politics to portray protesters as a disruptive enemy of Australian life. Prime Minister Scott Morrison himself has referred to environmental activists as quote, indulgent and selfish, and contrast this image with a silent majority, quote, taking care of their business, looking after their kids and grandkids, going to work, working hard. Now, I find this interesting, considering indulgence and selfishness on the part of those in power probably top the list throughout human history of reasons people get annoyed enough to protest. But anyway... This same angle was of course used against school strikers during the Global Extinction Rebellion protests, where the Liberal government again accused students raising awareness of the greatest threat to human civilization ever faced of just wanting to skip school. But there's a very deliberate motivation behind the government's rhetoric, which becomes clear when we take a look at what's been going on behind the curtain. Since 2001, over 80 new security laws have been introduced in Australia and several of them are directed at eroding the right to protest. This year in Queensland, so-called lock-on devices, instruments such as tripods and concrete cylinders used to securely fasten demonstrators to Adani machinery as a form of direct action protesting, are now illegal. The concept of locking on is as simple as fastening yourself to something and has been instrumental in many of the great 20th century protests, such as the suffragette movement. Now, in Queensland, you can face a $6,000 fine or up to two years in prison just for locking on. Also recently, New South Wales introduced new legislation punishing demonstrations on agricultural land with up to three years jail and a $22,000 fine. There have been calls for secondary boycotts a public pressure tactic very effective in halting funding for Adani's Galilee Basin project to be outlawed. In short, the government is doing its level best to use Australian law to strangle protesting rights. 
Classically, this would provoke massive public outrage, protesting being a fundamental freedom of everyone in a society. So, the Liberal government uses rhetoric that brands protesters as selfish and, quote, extremist, to make them seem like a sect that lies outside of normal Australian society, so that we think of school kids gathering in public spaces, because inaction on the climate emergency is creating a global disaster, as being the same as terrorists and cultists. And we don't mind so much if they get beaten by police, because they're not like us, and it's all to keep us safe. Remember, though, the reason the right to protest is so important is because all people can make their voices heard without fear of retribution from the law and police. Throughout the vast majority of human history, such a right has not existed, allowing powers from the Roman Empire to Imperial China to the Soviet Union to respond to any dissent from ordinary people with unchecked violence. In the grand scope of history, as ordinary Australians with the freedom to improve our lives through non-violent means. We are very, very, very lucky. Coming out of that discussion around the shutdown on our civil liberties, and that it is an actual thing. Yeah. Um, We're not overreacting. We're yeah. not overreacting. But I, I suppose it's so easy for individuals to respond with a sense of apathy and overwhelmedness. I think that's the, I think that's the as much as I hate to say it, the Gen Z like, automatic kickback. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have come back with the argument of like, well, climate crisis has already happened, uh, climate is already fucked, why should I do anything about it? <laughs> and the worst case, the worst thing is, I don't really have an answer for them. I think if you're overwhelmed by everything, don't do everything, just do something. Oh. Use a keep cup, recycle, boycott products. You don't have to do all those things, but if you just do some of those things... Mm. I, I suppose that for me, my perspective has always has been, look, I understand that we are part, past the point of return in a lot of different things, and I recognise that inequality is growing, uh, that we're seeing the same ugly rhetoric that we've seen in the 20th century and before that return in a really aggressive, far-right way in a lot of cases. And the thing I've always come up against with that, that, that sort of, oh, well, why do anything pro argument is you have to do something to feel this is cheesy as fuck but truly alive (laughs) like i could spend my entire day being like life is shit everything is ruined why the fuck should i do anything don't just my lifestyle okay (laughs) sure (laughs) but like you got to get up in the you got to get up in the morning right yeah and the only way I see these things improving is actually giving a voice or giving some movement towards them. So yep. that's always the perspective I take is like I can't live this nihilistic <laughs> lifestyle where I'm just like nothing matters. Because at the end of the day, people are being hurt by these systems. And when we don't see that, that's when we're in privileged spots where, where those are, that's kind of barricaded from our view. Yeah. And I mean, this kind of leads on to the idea of slacktivism mm. a little bit. And slacktivism is this idea of... Uh, Doing something kind of low effort and patting yourselves up, patting yourself on the back for it, and it's a loaded word. Mm. It's kind of bullshit the term slacktivism in itself because it's automatically making sound like you're lazy. Mm. So an example of slacktivism would be, say, um, and uh, using the rainbow filter on Facebook or Instagram to promote marriage equality. Yeah, because you're basically showing that you're like supporting the cause. But have you done something absolutely incredible? Yeah. No. 
I agree with you, Eleanor. It's an extraordinarily judgmental term, yeah. and it really barricades anyone from getting anywhere. <laughs> yeah, so I think we should move to this term and call it, like, flash activism. Like, it's quick, and it's like a flash flood. Like, it just, it can end up making a lot of change very, very quickly. With activism, the way I stand is, you know what? If you need to raise awareness, if this is, like, you getting involved with something for the first time, like, good. Just mm. show some uh, show some effort. But kind of think about where it's going to go. Yeah. Are you going to overtopple a system because you changed your icon on Instagram? Mm. No. Have you made some positive difference? Yes. Maybe, yes. And a concluding point I just wanted to make was the choice to protest is an act of privilege. By us choosing to go down the street, we are able to show our power and show our voices, which is a statement to the freedom that we have and enjoy. There are a lot of individuals who do not share in that privilege. Uh, by the very sake of being born and their identities, they are put in marginalised places where their voices are robbed. And an act of living, and an act of existing is a protest in itself. So there is one thing to acknowledge is that when you do choose to go to a protest or you choose not to go to a protest, that is a, that is a privilege position. Mm. And it comes with a lot of power. And one of the things I like to say when people don't want to go to protests or if they're tossing it up is you have power, you have voice. Y use it so that someone who doesn't have power or doesn't have voice can gain benefit from it. Because your apathy is also a privilege. If you're in a position where you say, I don't care about that, that clearly means, or not clearly, but it can mean that you are not affected by the issue. So maybe you need to stand up for someone else who doesn't necessarily have that voice, that doesn't have that privilege to be like, oh, I don't care. Hmm or put them in a position where they have that voice themselves. And that would be kind of our concluding thing, is think about, think about issues deeply, care about issues deeply. Care about other people deeply. Yeah, and have fun while you're doing it. Stay safe. Have a good punny sign. <laughs>